Good afternoon, everyone. I hope uh, everyone's having a good Friday and has survived this week. It's been a a crazy little week in the markets, and um, especially some of our stuff's gotten hit. But you know what? Nothing goes from lower left, upper right, and straight lines. So um, the fundamentals of our stuff still work, and the thesis is still remain intact. So I'm not. Uh, in any sort of panic way at all over anything that's happening. So um, let's get right to the questions. Just so everyone knows, I'm, I usually um, I usually do the podcast between 12 and 1 on Fridays. Uh, so if you do have a question, uh, please go ahead and email it before 12 to 1. Um, so then I can get it in this week um, and not... Uh, and not have to you have to have you wait a week to do it or something like that. So every now and then it happens, and it's no big deal. But just for your own, um, just so you get your stuff answered when you want to. So let's go with number one. What do you think of Occidental Petroleum stock, Oxy? It seems like Buffett, Munger, and Icon are all buying. Also, nine insiders are buying. Munger and Buffett are providing ten billion in preferred stock, paying eight percent. In addition to preferred stock, the ten billion came. With 80 million warrants to buy the oil companies at 62.50 a share, the current price of Oxy is 53 dollars. So, well, Icon is so Icon is not buying along with Buffett and Munger. Uh, what Icon is doing is Icon is pissed about the what Buffett got. Right? He's he's mad at the the deal they made. Uh, he's mad at the leveraging of the balance sheet that they've now done uh, to to make the acquisition. He's trying to stop the acquisition. So he's he's in no... And, and he's actually trying to get board seats and wants to replace the board and the CEO. So he's not in any way buying along with them. Um, I, I don't think Occidental is a bad deal. I just... I have enough in the oil space, oil and gas space right now that... I'm not looking to add any more there. Um, you know, I'm, I'm satisfied with what I have. Uh, you know, we're we're not really tied to commodity prices with Williams and with Kinder Morgan. We're more tied to volumes being shipped, and you know, at least we're all but guaranteed natural gas volumes are going to keep exploding. Uh, we have another round of. Um, uh, LNG, the second wave of LNG export places are are um, are on their way. Uh, Kinder Morgan should have one online very soon. Uh, they just got approved for another one. Uh, Williams is trying to get one approved off Transco, so that's going to really jumpstart demand for natural gas even greater. Because instead of it being localized and being sitting in storage, because there's so few export terminals, it's going to really start flowing out of the country. So. Uh, that's going to significantly add to what's going through their pipelines. And, um, and I, I just, it's good long-term growth for them. So that's kind of a sidetrack. Side but, um, you know, I, I, I'm not interested in being a buyer of Occidental Petroleum right now. I don't, you know, I understand Buffett has it. And Buffett got an amazing deal, um, you know, 8% on $10 billion bucks. So It seems to be Warren's MO lately. Same thing he did with Bank of America. Same thing he did like that. So um, I think, uh, you know, the warrants were a freebie. If he exercises it, if he wants, it's a great deal. 
Uh, if the stock never gets above 63, he never exercises the warrants, then he still gets 8% on a $10 billion investment, which is, you know, it's, it's a, that's a good, nice little interest rate. So it's, it's, a really, it's a typical Buffett, really doesn't lose anyway at all. If he wins, he wins big. If the stock doesn't go anywhere, he still gets his 8%. So, um, but I don't, I don't have an interest in it personally. Could you please comment on today's IMF news? This is a couple days ago, not necessarily today's. Fannie Mae had a blowout second quarter, posting a strong profit of $3.4 billion, but the GSC warned that thanks to the coming current expected credit loss, CECL, accounting standard, it may suffer a reduction in retained earnings of roughly $4 billion. And since its retained capital is $3 billion, you can do the math. In its earnings report, the government-sponsored enterprise explained that come January 2020, the CECL standard likely will introduce additional volatility in the, in the results as credit-related income or expense will be, included, will be included expected lifetime losses on the company's loans and other financial instruments shut to the standard and has become more sensitive to fluctuations. Does this mean the FHFA might stop the net worth before January 2020? So two parts to that. Uh, first part would be that the CECL accounting standard is stupid. Uh, I don't know why they're doing it. it. Basically what it's saying is you have these credit instruments and you have these loans and you have to figure out your lifetime losses on these 30-year mortgages that you're insuring. 30-year mortgages. You have to estimate your credit losses 20, 30 years down the road. And those are going to be in some way reflective of current earnings, either positive or negative. And it's going to happen each quarter. So it's just, it's just, it's the ultimate ridiculous accounting standard. It's just utterly ridiculous. Um, No one can predict credit losses seven years down the road, much less 30. I mean, that, that, I mean, it's, it defies logic, but whatever. That's what accounting is nowadays, I guess. Um, um, so yeah, so depending on the expectations of lifetime losses on the loans outstanding, whatever instruments they may have, uh, they're gonna, that is going to either be a positive or a negative earnings. So obviously if the lifetime earnings expectations decrease then it's going to be a positive for earnings. If it increases, it'll be a negative for earnings. And, you know, it's going to change quarter to quarter because obviously the, econo- the current economy is going to change. Um, loans they may be selling or risk they may be offloading to other places is going to affect what is left on their books and it will obviously affect the, the end number. So it's going to change constantly. And honestly... It's meaning. It's a meaningless number. It's a, it's an utterly meaningless number, and I, I, for the life of me, I don't understand it. It just seems like one more thing a government decides they need to do to help reduce risk, and it ends up all it does is going to end up giving volatility. And what's going to end up happening? Here's what's going to end up happening. Everyone who is going to be um, ex- uh, exposed to this is just going to report adjusted earnings without this plus or minus all over the place. So it's going to become another reason that gap earnings are going to be irrelevant because they have to make this adjustment for something that may or may not happen 10, 15, 20, 30 years down the road. Because let's face it, they insure 30-year mortgages. 30 years. 
you can't tell me with any sort of accuracy what losses you're going to... If in, if in 2005, or 2000 even, go back to 2000, 2005, 2003, 2002, they were running this stupid exercise, every single person would have been off by massive factors, right? Because of the losses, they, all losses everyone experienced from 2000, basically 2008 to 2012 in, in the loan market. Everyone would have been off. That just proves the utter uselessness of that model. And you can even go to 2006, 2007, they would have been off. And that's only two years away. Um, you can't, it's just, I don't know. I, I, know, I, know, I can't even, I could go on about the moronic nature of that for about an hour and a half, uh, but I don't want to. It's just really, it's really, really so frustrating when they do shit like this. All it does is make Gap earnings are relevant. That's all it does. And it forces companies to use adjusted earnings. And then it forces people to have to dig down. Okay, what's adjustment came out? Why did this adjustment come out? Is this legit? Is it not? It's just, it's just stupid. It's just some sort of accounting body, regulator, trying to verify their existence by coming up with something that they have to look into. And now you're going to have to have people check, see if the, if the lifetime expected losses are legit. So now you're going to have to have another agency come up and say, okay, now we need to investigate this. And, oh, it changed 2% over last quarter. Why did it change? And it's just, whatever. It's just, it's just, it's so, so frustrating. Um, since you started the podcast just the past few months, I'd be interested if you went over your thoughts on any notable winners or losers they've already closed. Jamba, I go, or just pick a few and talk about some of the closed positions from years ago. Learning about the past helps us prevent future errors. Love the podcast. This is a great idea, um, and I hadn't thought about doing this. I actually was asked, um, when did I do this? Um, I want to say end of March. Um, I was asked to do a thing for Pace University out in Cleveland about value investing and um, basically what it is. It was, a, it was an introductory class that they were doing, and they had different speakers. They had, you know, traders, option traders, momentum traders, wanted value guys, stuff like that. And they had different people do it. So I did this for them, and I, I, I have it. I'll, I'll include the PDF on the, on the podcast post that I did. Um, but in it, I did case studies. I said, you know, there's really... There's really four main types of value plays. This is a chapter 11, which is asset mispricing, right? Companies just valued wrong based, their assets are just valued wrong, which is you could say Texas Pacific Land Trust is right now, right? We're saying that the value of that land is, is grossly underestimating uh, what it's actually worth and what it eventually will be worth. Uh, legal problems or just an erroneous general consensus. So those are the four main um, categories they had and and each one in each one of those I did a um, a little case study so the first one for the chapter 11 was obviously GGP I'm not going to go over that because that's pretty um, I think that's probably the most well-known one um, aside from that we did Bank of America <clears throat> and I actually did oil um, we've been talking oil a lot lately, so uh, there's no reason to go over that one. American Capital was one from a long time ago. So I think 
I think I'll go over that one today. And then um, I guess you could send emails on if you want to hear uh, sort of a postmortem of any of the losers that we've done. Uh, go ahead and send that in or I'll just randomly pick a loser for next week uh, and what happened or what didn't happen, you know, what didn't turn out the way I thought it was going to turn out. So um, I'll go ahead and, and do that for next week. But since I already have um, these positive um, one done, I'll, I'll, do, I'll do American Capital right now and then I'll post a PDF with all four of them uh, to the podcast page so people could go through all four of them if they want. So um, so the case study was American Capital in basically mispriced assets. So um, and for those who know the background, American Capital was a publicly traded private equity firm and a global asset manager. They primarily invested between $5 million to $400 million in mid-level companies, typically via debt. Uh, during the financial crisis, this is, this is 2009, uh, they were forced to write down the fair value of their holdings materially. And they then became in violation of their own debt covenants. Okay? So, remember, credit froze, right? And they were forced, because we live FAS 157, mark-to-market world back then, because of all these mid-level companies are writing down debt, they had to then do it too because they couldn't sell that debt, right, a hundred cents on the dollar or 95 cents on the dollar because some idiot got in trouble and had to sell theirs at 60 cents on the dollar. That's what American Capital then had to write their stuff down at, okay? Or if they had a couple defaults in their portfolio, they had to start writing the whole portfolio down. Um, Just as a side note, FAF 157, which was the... um, mark-to-mark accounting was just about as responsible as this would happen for what we saw in the Great Recession or the, the Great Panic, the Great Sell-Off, whatever you want to, whatever name you want to give it. Um, it forced hundreds of billions of dollars in non-cash write-downs um, that didn't actually reflect real losses. And those write-downs caused countless companies to be in violation of debt covenants, liquidity covenants, uh, liquidity requirements, and and default on this and default on that. And it really, it really hurt a lot of entities, a lot of people. It also gave us great opportunities, the GGP being one of those, um, uh, this American Capital, another one, um, and some of the bank, Bank of America that we bought. So while it was, I think, in a large, large way responsible for the spiral that we saw downward, um, I think it also gave great opportunity. And I'm glad it was not not eradicated, but heavily modified to reduce the damage it did. And then you just started seeing a lot of these assets that were written down. In the coming quarters after it was gone, they were written back up. And at the end of the day, the, the actual losses suffered on these assets that were written down 50%, 30% of their value were, were, zero, or were minimal at best. So... A huge side note, I'm sorry. So it was was American Capital going to be another Chapter 11? And no, uh, this was more about the assets being mispriced. ACAS was in violation not due to any non-payment of debt or bank refusal to refinance, <clears throat> but because due to non-cash debt write-downs, they violated the shareholder equity requirement of the debt provisions. 
This caused the shares to sink to Russ shares roughly two dollars and ninety-five cents versus seven ninety-five net asset value. And that was a BDC company, so that's pretty much how they were were um, were valued. Is this is the net net value of these assets, and the stocks generally traded around the net asset value. Um, ACAS has historically traded in line with this net asset value. It received a going concern notice from auditors. This was automatically triggered by its covenant violation notice, but it wasn't the reality of the situation. So because they violated this debt covenant notion, the auditors automatically had to trigger this um, going concern notice. People freaked, right? People freaked. Um, Lenders were incentivized to work with the company as they did not want to write off more assets, right? So remember, this is, this is similar to the GGP situation, except ACAS never won Chapter 11. At that point in time, we're talking late 2009, banks could not write off any more, any more losses, especially on performing loans, right? So the lenders were incentivized to work with ACAS, not force repayment of all their debt, not force them into Chapter 11, because it would have hurt everyone. Wall Street was calling into question the company's valuation of its assets, thus the 125% discount to net asset value. But Wall Street was very wrong about the asset valuation. Wall Street was saying that ACAS's 795 net asset value was grossly overstated and that the assets were being held too high over the books. Credit Suisse um, had a note saying that the assets were actually worth less than 295 and was predicting in Chapter 11. I did some blog posts back then about that and went back and forth with the um, analysts on the situation who later changed his mind, uh, but that was a big downgrade for them. It was, very, it was very easy to solve the argument. I just read the public filings. Okay, So it, part of the BDC, they were regularly buying and selling debt. Right? It was a regular part of their business. So, and they're regularly selling businesses in there, right? Sometimes they own the businesses, they own the debt, the business was sold and the debt was sold with it. And, you know, there was, reg there was regularly easily ways to find out if they're valuing these assets on the books. <clears throat> so all I did is go back and do research on past asset sales the company had. They bought and sold them regularly, as I said. And when I found out they sold an asset, the sales price generally fell within a 5% value that they marked it on their books. Okay, that meant based on what they've done in their whole history, their nav could vary roughly 40 cents in either direction, from 7.95 to 7.55 or 8.35. There's no way that asset value would be re redone down to 2.95, even if the company was wildly off this time by say 40 percent. Right? Say their say their marks on their debt, even though they'd marked them down, even if they were still 40 percent off. Nav would have been lowered to roughly 470, and my investment still would have been at roughly 60% profit. Not only was Wall Street wrong on the Nav, it had completely dismissed the chance of any net asset value upside. For instance, um, ACAS had a CRE CDO, commercial real estate collateralized debt obligation. The cost of it was 218 million. It was being held at a mark to market value of 12 million. However, it produced $5 million in cash flow per quarter. ACAS eventually received $88 million for it at maturity. That was an over seven times increase in the fail value. Okay, So this, this asset that was being held at $12 million 
was producing $20 million of cash flow a quarter. That shows you how ridiculous the valuations were back then. When they sold it later on, they received seven times the net asset value for it. The portfolio was full of such mispricings, and I knew as assets began to fulfill their value, NAS would write sharply, and so the stock price. So what happened? Again, banks were still recovering from the financial crisis and had no real desire to take more write-downs on performing assets. ACAST negotiated reprieve from lenders, and they did a capital raise. Shareholders approved more shares, and that saved the shareholder equity violation, and the going concern notice was removed. So they had, they had, they issued, had to issue like 20% more shares, so they had to go to shareholders. Shareholders overwhelmingly approved the capital raise. The lenders gave... Uh, you know, extended the the time period for the going concern notice on the rectify it for for ACAS. ACAS did it and they removed it. So eventually, ACAS recovered. We held it for several years. Uh, now reversed as the market <clears throat> and continued to grow as successfully marked on assets regained their value. However, ACAS never saw itself fully trade at net asset value again as a, a historically had before as Papa Aries Capital. And it was bought for Aries Capital at 18.06 a share. So our total return on that was roughly 455%. Um, and it was, it was a great outcome. It was, in my mind, a relatively simple investment to make if one just did a little bit of work. Um, and we just sat on it and held it. Um, you know, there were a couple times where it, it traded down and we added to positions in it. Um, and, uh, I never sold a share until I, I sold them all at once. And that was how I went about that one. It wasn't, it was a nice little find. Um, but it wasn't a particularly diff difficult one. I don't think anyone needed an advanced degree in finance, um, to go through that and say, you know, you're reading it and you're reading what they are selling and you're looking at the valuations of what they sell it at and the valuations would have held that and consistently year after year after year, they're valuing these things on the book legitimately. They, they took huge write downs in 09 on their, on their debt, but the, the Wall Street was, was so pessimistic and so um, sanguine on them that they just didn't believe it. So... Um, we had three buys of it. Our first buy was in December 2009. That's still made 455% on it. We bought it again in 2012. Um, in January, we made 147% on that one. And then in 2016, we bought it at 1397, sold at 1799 for 29% gain. And we sold, we sold them in 2016. So, you know, we held it for seven years. Made a nice, nice, nice bit of money on it, and what I what I looked at as as very little risk. Um, it was frustrating that it never fully traded to Nav again. Um, that was a frustrating thing, but again, what you know, you, you can't quibble over that. You, you still did really well on it. You still get upset, but you still get upset that it never. You could you know, you, instead of eighteen, you could have made twenty one bucks, but you know whatever. You still did really well and. You know, we're a year or two where it didn't do well, but 
at the end of the day, that asset value continued to rise. And as long as that was rising, the stock was going to follow it up, and it did. Um, so I'll do a loser next week. If anyone has any particular, um, like I said before, if you have any particular um, um, holdings that didn't go as we expected them to or didn't go well or whatever, um, we can talk about it. Let's keep it to closed ones, ones that we've sold, uh, because obviously any any active ones we're always talking about anyway. So it'd be kind of redundant. So I think the maybe the purpose is to do this and um, only focus on uh, only uh, mistakes from the past. Um, it's a great thing to do, and I, I wish I thought of it myself. So, uh, thank you very much to the subscriber who sent it in. So, um, another question: What's next for TPL? So, uh, saw the news this week: TPL, Horizon, and TPL decided to put their lawsuits aside. Um, they dropped them uh, without bias, without yeah, whatever it's called, um, and. They can refile them if they want, <clears throat> but they've agreed, neither one has agreed to refile them until the cooling off period after the committee finishes its work, which is the committee finishes its work and it uh, has to be done by December 31st of this year. There's a, I think it's a 60, 30 or 60 day cooling off period and then whatever happens. Um, I'm hoping it doesn't take that long to December 31st. I don't see any reason why it really should um everyone coming to the table has allegedly looked into the conversion to a c-corp um has come up with ways to do it so it's not like this committee starting from scratch uh both sides have their reasoning and both sides have their ideas of what they want to do so it should be a relatively easy process and i'm sure both sides have shared their ideas already with each other um, so I, and I think that the process should be rather quick, um, if we're actually going to talk about this and go through the thing. Now there's a, there's an interesting confidential confidentiality order that was modified in a, the original confidentiality order could be nothing could be discussed that um, in the beginning, that there's complete and total gag order. Um, that was modified to basically say, you know, anything that's been in your possession before the agreement was signed can be talked about publicly. So the way I read it, you know, if Horizon has gone through this process and has a, a blueprint that they've, completed and finished before this process that they're allowed to talk about it um i don't know if they will i don't know if that would hurt negotiations or hurt the process so they may keep it to themselves unless and use it if they need to um but who knows but it, it was modified slightly to allow some disclosures of things so we'll have we'll see how we'll see how and when that stuff is that stuff comes about um they also um, um, oh, it's the tip of my tongue. Um, they're going to do it in six months. Uh, they also agreed to leave the, the, uh, trustees, the third trustee seat empty until the process is done. 
and I'm assuming then we'll have another vote um, or whatever. But if 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 you're not sure why we want to have a conversion to a C corp um, or materially modify the trustee original trustee document then look at the earnings from last quarter and i posted this on the site and if you haven't read it yet please go to it there's no disclosure there's no detail of anything so you know revenues grew 18 percent year over year but earnings fell and there's no explanation as to why the financials that they provide provide basically gross revenues and gross profits for each division. No, no mention of expenses, where the money went, what it was spent on. No mention of the profitability of, of how the profitability and no breakout of the water business. Nothing, nothing. It's awful. I mean, I'm guessing that they spent a shitload of money on that proxy contest with their Google ads and Facebook ads and the mailings they were doing. And I bet you they spent millions of dollars on that. And I bet you that's why earnings fell. Because of the money they spent ostensibly to stop a vote. Right? I mean, that, that's what it was. They spent all this money on this proxy contest and hired all these lawyers to keep moving the vote on shareholders. And they ended up having a drop in income in the second quarter. And I'm guessing that's why. And that's terrible. And it's, there's no disclosure on it, no nothing. So that's why we need to do it. So, you know, there's other scenarios too. So maybe... You know, maybe the water business is spun out as a C-Corp to shareholders. There's, there's a lot of discussion around the tax implications of changing from a trust to a C-Corp. And <clears throat> I can't even begin to get into that because it's so... It, it's, it, it will make you hate accountants and accounting and tax law. So until we get some sort of options of what's going to happen, we don't know. But there's all sorts of scenarios. So instead, if the if the tax implications are going to be too great, you know, um, do you just modify the trust document, which will require a shareholder vote, which I think they would probably get acceptance of? Um, do you expand the trustees to five, and do you not give them lifetime appointments? And you know, you could obviously with the trustees would have to put it forth, and shareholders would have to vote on it. Um, you could modify the the document, the trust document. You know, could you spin off, could you create a C-Corp of the water business and spin that off since you're not changing the structure of the entire trust? There may not be tax implications. If they can do it and convert to a C-Corp, uh, will they split the shares to add liquidity so that the TPL could get added? I mean, it's a $10 billion company. It could be added to some indexes, to the Russell, you know, to the Wilshire. Um, some energy indexes could pick it up. So there's, again, there's things that could be done in there. And that would add more demand for shares, driving the share price up. So there's, I mean, you could go on for days about the various scenarios and what's going to be the most beneficial. And um, the, the law here in the 
implications are so bizarre i can't i can't get into it because i don't fully understand it either it's going to need to be explained to people by uh people who do this for a living and um you know i don't i don't do trust conversions of c-corps for a living so anything i say and it would be a complete and utter guess and i really don't want to do that so um I wanted. I need to jump back because I didn't answer part of a question. The second question, um, when I was rambling on about that accounting standard for the GSEs, so does this mean that FHFA might stop the network sweep before January 2020? So I, I, I don't know if <clears throat> that's going to be the reason they do it. I mean, I Calabria has been talking about the network sweep in stopping it and, and I just posted this week uh, a speech he did in in end of June uh, that he wants to start stop the net worth sweep this year um, he's been saying that he's gonna start negotiating with Treasury in Q3 about ending the net worth sweep um, so I you know I don't I don't necessarily know that that's the impetus for it I think that he's more concerned about stopping the net worth sweep because that GS needs need to start building capital and stopping the net worth sweep is the first step in building capital. I mean, you know, Fannie's got $3 million buffer. They just sent $3.4 million. They're going to send $3.4 million to Treasury in September. Or, I'm sorry, end of August. Um, you know, maybe when the plan comes out, that August payment doesn't get made. And all of a sudden now that there's a lot more in the bank to absorb any anything that happens right now. So, you know, it's... We're all just waiting, you know. According to Calabria, you know, his plan's almost done. Treasury has it, and they're working through things. You read some stuff in the paper, you know, it's and it's all, I, honestly, I, I honestly believe it's all crap. Um, you know, so here's the thing. If you, th- if you talk to someone who is is in this, is in this, right? You talk to someone who owns the preferred shares, um, or if you think, if you're talking to someone who owns the common and you ask them why you think it's going to happen and what's going on, you'll sit there for 25 minutes while they tell you, right? Because everyone I know who's in this, you know, they know about the lawsuits, they know about the lawyers, they know the speeches the lawyers have given, the talks the lawyers have given, the, the, pre- the um, uh, you know the interviews I've given with Pagloria Investors Unite. They'll tell you about the the difference of par. They'll tell you about the network sweep. They'll tell you about the legality of it. They will tell you a ton of things for a very long time because they've done the work on it, right? Or they've read from those who have done the work on it. Either way, when you talk to people who are of the opinion that you know shareholders should get wiped out and they can never do it, you don't. You'll get thirty seconds out of them. Maybe a minute and a half. I, I, it, they're too, they'll never raise $100 billion. They'll never do this. They'll never do that. Right? It's always never, 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 never. They'll never raise $100 billion. I disagree with that. Just because it's not the largest private company IPO doesn't mean they can't raise the money. Which It doesn't mean that. Maybe they do it over time. Who knows? But, you know, it, what... what why do journalists know that they're never going to better raise $100 billion? They don't. They're not in the room. 
They haven't had conversations like the government has had with, you know, banks and investment banks and investors and stuff like that. You'll hear, um, you know, they're going to lose the lawsuits. They already lost. They already lost all the lawsuits. Well, no, they haven't completely lost all the lawsuits. You know, one got sent. The first one got sent back, and the Lambeth one is big because his his decision formed every other decision out there. Right? It set the precedent, and they all just followed it, except for Sweeney. God bless her. She's at least going to have a trial. It's not going to start till next year, but she's at least going forward with this. The Fifth Circuit, again, we're waiting and waiting. And, you know, part of me thinks the Fifth Circuit is waiting um, for the plan to come out. Um, you know, now we have, you know, now <clears throat> Treasury's changing its stance on things, and that's going to cause another huge delay. It's, you know, whether or not they let them do that or not is is another story, but we'll see. Um, but the people who are adamantly that this has never happened can't really give you a, a convincing reason why. You know, it's like, oh, it'll never happen before the election. They'll never be able to raise the money. They're going to lose in court. Uh, it's, it's just... it's. It's one sentence knows. And I, until someone can sit down with me and walk me through why this will never happen and why there's no way to structure this that maybe someone hasn't thought of yet so it can be done. You know, maybe, I'm not talking about someone at FHA or Treasury hasn't structured it. But, you know, so maybe Treasury gives back the excess $34 billion they've taken from them, declares <coughs> the senior PERSOC paid in full. That automatically gives a really nice buffer to Fannie and Freddie, right? They get that money back. And all that is is a journal entry, is accounting entry from one their books to the other books. And all of a sudden, boom, they're a hell of a lot more capitalized than they were. Maybe they go out and raise $50, $50 billion the first time and the government keeps its keeps its support open until they come up with the other $50 billion. They don't have to do it all in January of this year. There's ways to do it that can make it be done. The people who, who are against this happening just don't want to admit that it could. Right? They just don't want to... They don't want to hear it. And it's the same thing if you go back... Remember, if you go back to GGP, it was the same thing. GGP at the time, it's, uh, it's liabilities outweighed its assets. And don't quote me, but I think they had $36 billion in liabilities and $29 billion in assets. And that was all people looked at. And when we got into that, we were told we, I mean, told we were morons. They were like, it's Chapter 11, 101. Liabilities outweigh assets. Shareholders are wiped out. You're a fool. You know, you're an idiot for telling people to buy this. They're going to lose their shirts, and they're going to blame you, da 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 And it was the same thing over and over and over. The people who said that, they looked at two numbers, and they made a conclusion on the investment without doing any work. There was no detail why. 
You know, we could have sat there and we could have sat there and said, hey, you know what? Look at the debt. It's all non-recourse debt. Look at the banks. You know, it's that old quote, if you owe, if, if you owe your bookie, uh, I think it was Trump. Trump said, if you owe the bank, if you owe the bank a million dollars, you got a problem. If you owe the bank a hundred million dollars, the bank's got a problem. And I think he said this in the eighties when, you know, a hundred million dollars was a hell of a lot more than it is now. <clears throat> and it was a hundred percent true. Not only was it non-recourse debt, but remember, FAF 157, the banks couldn't take those loans. They couldn't take the losses. They couldn't write down their entire uh, Class A mall portfolio 40%. It would have wiped them out. What they did is they went to court to try and uh, nullify the non-recourse debt covenants. And, of course, it didn't work. They lost all the, every court case they could. And then they just started restructuring all the debt for GGP. And it rose in value. But it's the same thing. The people who were in that trade understood why the common stock was going to retain money. They understood why the banks weren't going to foreclose on everything. The people who weren't in the trade, just thought it was a stupid idea, just looked at two numbers. And, and, and in my gut, that's the same way I see this GSE trade. It has a, a lot more... Um, you know, it has a lot more tentacles to it, you know? You have the capital raise you have to do. You have the government. You have Treasury, FHFA. You have politics. You have the legal cases. Except you have the housing market, et cetera, et cetera. But the, it's the same thing. So now why do the stocks sell off all the time? Because you, I think you know, when it looks like we're getting to a point things are going to happen, you get hot money in it, right? People are like, hey, if this thing works out, these preferred stocks are going to more than double, probably almost overnight. So let's get in. And then when it looks, you know, the stock starts creeping up, stops creeping up, starts creeping up. And then it looks like, oh, we're going to have to wait another month. So let's get out and we'll wait another month. So, you know, people are jumping in and out like that. Personally, I am not going to do that. And I've said the reason why I'm not going to do it. Because I'm convinced that probably it'll be on a Friday night. Um, you know, they're not going to release anything on this during market hours. I mean, I can't imagine they would do it. The, it would just unleash utter insanity. But it'll probably be on a Friday night after the close or over a weekend that they'll roll out the plan. And they'll talk about converting preferred, you know, uh, junior preferreds are going to get par. They're, whatever they're going to do, they're going to say. And there's, you know, these are OTC stocks. <clears throat> so if you're not in them, when that planner's is is um, announced, you can't get into the market opens, and there's no way that an eighteen dollar or nineteen dollar preferred share that has a par value of fifty, if the plan is converted at par, there's no way that stock opens at nineteen bucks, right? Who the hell is going to sell it? Right? Now, maybe it opens at 30, 35, or 40. Maybe it probably won't go to full par right away because, again, this, this is the plan. It's, you know, there's a lot of things that have to happen, and there still is some risk it doesn't happen. So, but it's going to be worth a hell of a lot more than 18 bucks. And that, that, those people aren't going to be able to get back in. 
they'll get back in and, you know, if they're lucky in the 30s. In my opinion, that's what's going to happen. So, you know, we'll, we'll look at our nice little double and they'll get in and maybe get some more scraps and we'll see. But I just, I don't see them being able to get in unless, you know, unless rumors are floated. And again, you know, given the... Given the big deal this is going to be, I'm so skeptical that they're going to they're going to leak because every leak is going to be ta- every leak is going to cause shares to go crazy. Every leak is going to be a direct pipeline to the housing market. What's going to happen here? What's going to happen there? Da 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 da. You know, you can have mortgage rates start going crazy. It it would it would, un- it would unnerve people to have leaks coming out without complete information. And I honestly think that it won't happen. I don't think they'll leak it. Obviously, you know, shit could happen, but I think if anyone leaks it, it'll be someone doing it on their own. It won't be a coordinated leak by Treasury or FHFA. Um, Because, like I said before, because of the potential ramifications of partial information coming out that could be taken anyway by any number of market participants um, we can guarantee the media is going to say, you know, <clears throat> how can this, dev- the, the first words, how is this going to devastate the housing market? So we know right away <coughs> how the media is going to take it. So any leaks going to be, you know, and it's just, it would be bad. So my gut feeling is that it'll happen on a Friday night when the markets are closed. It'll happen over a weekend, you know, and that way I think that you know, if they do it on a Friday night or a Saturday morning, you have the whole weekend to digest it. People can talk about it. They can do any kind of Q&As they need to do to calm people down. They can do a press coverage if they want. They can do whatever they need to do to set people straight to minimize, you know, the potential panic that the media will try to incite with this thing. So, I've I've kind of always felt that way, and, and I, I still do, you know. As far as when, I mean, I don't know. I thought we would have had it done by end of July. Um, we don't. Now they're saying August. It's August. So, you know, I don't, um, you know, it's like Monday through Friday. I really don't expect to hear a damn thing about it. Uh, but then every Friday and every weekend, I'm like, you know, if 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 it's going to happen, this is when it's going to happen. So we'll see. Um, you know, maybe they announce when they're going to bring the plan out. Although I'm not sure, you know, they've already kind of done that a couple times and not many people believe them. So I don't know. We'll see. But uh, this kind of went off on a tangent there. I apologize. But that's kind of where I am with that. Um, I, I I've lost no... I haven't lost any sleep over this trade in the GSEs. Um, and when I did start to lose a little sleep out, it was because of my concerns about the common. Um, and I, I made that change. But as far as the, um, you know, as far as we go and with the, the, the preferreds, I still think, I still think that's the way it's going to be, so. So that's where I am. Um, I see. I want to need to. I want to do a real quick check. See if there's any other questions for this week. I know everybody's probably on vacation and not sending in questions. I think about it, but 
Um, no, no more questions. All right, so that's where we're at. Um, hope I haven't babbling too long. Yeah, a little bit while. I apologize. But so send in your send in emails next week if you want me to go over uh, what losing trade you want me to go over, and I'll just kind of compile them all, and I'll I'll do the one that gets the most votes, maybe. Um. Yeah, I guess I'll do the one that has the most votes, and uh, we'll see if we can, you know, maybe do one every couple of weeks or one a week or whatever. Or I don't know. I'm up for anything. So I hope everybody has a a very safe and very happy and very fun-filled weekend. And uh, I will be back next week. Um, enjoy, everybody. <laughs>